Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 98th episode of the Nauticast titled Death March, an analysis of A Clash of Kings Arya 6 in which Arya bears witness to war crimes before being enslaved and forced march to Harrenhal, a castle even Dracula would call over the top. God, man, Emmett, this is going to be a real fun episode, isn't it? When I think about this chapter, I just think about the climactic moment of uh, Apocalypse Now and Heart of, Heart of Darkness. The horror, the horror. That's all this is. So, in this very fun episode, is brought to you by our small council patrons, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Lord Gene, Master of Coin, Archbishop June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Warren of the West of the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Warren of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soybu of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie of the Blackwood Guard and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the They Dees and Gentle Thems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for Several Unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Love that. Haldivar, the waiter for Tiwau, A.A. Ron, Damphair, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneras of House Colgarian, the First of Redeem, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Brown, Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Blender of Paints and Maker of Drawings, and our newest member of the Small Council. Everyone give a warm welcome to Seanwell the Slayer. Thank you, counselors, very much, and welcome to Seanwell. Thank you, counselors, as always, and welcome very much to Sean Wall the Slayer. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' novellas, histories, interviews, the Windsor Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Nicholas B., a brand new Sworn Sword patron. Welcome to Sir Nicholas. And he asks, Hey guys, I'm very proud to be a supporter. I only started listening to you recently, but have caught up with your episodes. I thought I might, as a Sworn Sword, ask you a non-Song of Ice and Fire question. Honestly, I just want to know, what is your favorite hilariously terrible movie? I'm currently cringing my way through Mortal Engines and love it. What's your pick? Also, all the happiness in the world to Emmett. I wish you two the best. Well, thank you very much for that, Sir Nicholas. I got engaged recently, so I appreciate that. Yay! Oh, shut up, Jeff. You don't have feelings. That's your brand. You can't betray this. Oh, shucks. (laughs) More importantly, though, sir, what is your favorite hilariously terrible movie? Which Zack Snyder film will it be? Oh, sir. Zack Snyder is a master director in his masterpiece. All of his movies are masterpieces. True. Can't pick just one from his oeuvre. (laughs) That's true. So I, I, I picked this question specifically because this chapter is going to be very, very dark and terrible and awful. So kind of a little levity to kind of start these sorts of things off. So my, as you guys know, um, maybe you don't know, I, I was, I grew up watching the great show on sci-fi called Mystery Science Theater 3000. And so instead of picking like some, you know, relatively okay movie, I thought I would pick, I would rank my top five Mystery Science Theater 3000 movies of all time, which you guys should see. A lot of these are actually on YouTube these days. So if you want to, you know, laugh for a long time, go ahead and look at that. So number one, Space Mutiny. Number two, uh, Santa Claus versus the Martians. Number three, hmm, uh, The Final Sacrifice, of course, with Troy. Um, have you seen that one? I have seen that one. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. Yeah. It's true. With the masks and the BSDMs. <laughs> it's so, so crazy. It's a wacky, wacky, wacky movie. Um, the other Santa Claus movie, which is called just Santa Claus, which is a Mexican-made Santa Claus, which is horrible, but it's so good. It's, it's just like so campy and really, really good. And then finally, the uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 movie, which is... Um, I can't remember what the movie's called. It, uh, it's, it's actually a pretty, it was a B movie from the 50s, but uh, I don't remember the exact movie off the top of my head, but I just remember the aliens having the massive foreheads, that being the source of about 90% of the jokes, which was really, really good. So those are some of the bad movies that I love. What about you, man? What are some hilariously terrible movies and what would be your picks for ones that you love? 
I mean, there's, there's a blurry line between movies that are objectively bad that I genuinely still like, like the Star Wars prequels or the Matrix sequels or stuff like that. But in terms of movies that I, I, I wouldn't even defend on that level, I mean, M. Night Shyamalan has made some true, true classics <laughs> because just his movies have production value in a way that a lot of terrible movies don't. Like they look like movies mm-hmm. and yet the decisions being made are like, who, who let this through? What, who was producer? Oh, I guess it was just M. Night Shyamalan producing this. That makes sense. <laughs> and I genuinely love some of his movies. I'll defend The Village. I love The Sixth Sense. Everyone loves mm-hmm. The Sixth Sense, but. It, it takes a level of genius to make something as bad as The Happening, where every mm. single shot introduces a new kind of mistake. Like, oh, a new tone, that's wrong. <laughs> that acting choice, that's the that's the best take you got, huh? And I mean, there's, he does stuff that's absolutely unwatchable. Like, uh, the, only, like the only time that I've genuinely walked out of a, a theater that I paid, you know, money to go into was his uh, Last Airbender movie, because mm. like, that's, like, that's unwatchable. But some of his movies, man, it's like... Again, like uh, mediocrities could make better movies, but not not as interesting ones. So, I, I won't I won't reclaim his a lot of his stuff the way people have like reclaimed like Tony Scott's movies as, as genuinely mm-hmm. good. But um, but man, there's nothing like him. Well, do, do, have you actually watched some of his newer movies? The uh, Glass and was it Shattered Glass or whatever it is that oh, Shattered Glass? Gla- or something else. Glass but. was fine. Glass was fun. Um, it was it had enough of the the weird because the thing about Shyamalan is, is like his camera movements are interesting but also make no sense. Like he'll have this <laughs> weird like expensive looking distinctive shot and it's like okay that was cool but like there's no story reason for it. Like it doesn't enhance mm-hmm. anything. It's like oh. You watched Spielberg movies over and over again, but you never learned why he shot the movies that way. You never exactly. learned like how he was furthering story. You just said, oh, that push-in is a cool shot. So, uh, and, and Glass has a lot of that, where it's just like, this is so unmotivated, yet clearly <laughs> you're working hard on it. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I, lo- I, will always, I will always pay money to see his movies, even though that's like objectively a terrible use of my money. I don't care. Let it's, it burn. It's, re- it's okay. It's okay. You can, you can embrace your badness. Thank you, Jeff. I haven't actually seen Mortal Engines. People have told me that that's another hilariously bad one, and I do like, <laughs> I do like overblown, terrible sci-fi fantasy. So that's Peter Jackson, that. right? Is, am, I, am I wrong about that? Is he like? I don't understand. Does Peter Jackson direct movies anymore, or does he like just show up with like a cup of coffee and his rumpled expression and say that's the correct CG artist? I'm, I'm like serious. I don't know if he like does. Is he directed that one? Did he produce that one? I don't. I don't know. I, but like, I, yeah, I don't know either. You saw the Lindsay Ellis, like the uh, the takedown of, of the Hobbit movies, right? Oh, sure. And you, you see the thousand yard expression from that. That looks like a <laughs> like I, I quit movies level face. So I'm not sure how much he's he's invested anymore. Yeah, I think that kind of drained the life from him. That took about 15 years off his life, sadly. But I mean, it's I mean, the, yeah. Yeah, it's so, so sad for Peter Jackson, who had, you know, had so much promise and did such amazing, wonderful things with the Lord of the Rings movies. And Oh, sure. And yeah. before that was some great movies, too. He's still he's still a great filmmaker. I just, yeah, you get, you get too big and you end, up, you end up with the lovely bones. I'm not sure how that happens to you, but <laughs> somehow that happens. So thank you, Sir Nicholas, for the question. If you'd like to ask us a question on the Not A Cast podcast, you're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher patron or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F where you can get show notes, early access to every episode, Q&A, and bonus episodes. And speaking of those bonus episodes, our latest patron-only episode, Flag Day, our analysis of all the sigils and heraldry in A Song of Ice and Fire and in A Song of Ice and Fire history and real-world history, George's love for them and use of them in fantasy and how George uses them to kind of do a bit of storytelling and foreshadowing future events is out now for all poor fellow and above patrons if you're listening on the release day and that again is available at patreon.com forward slash not a cast a s o i a f but enough about patreon let's turn our attention to aria of house stark when we last left aria she hot pie and gendry had just been taken captive by gregor clegane at lake town let's see what befalls aria in this synopsis of a clash of kings aria six fear Cuts deeper than swords, Arya would tell herself. But that did not make the fear go away. Oh boy, here we go. Welcome to the happiest chapter in Clash of Kings. It's not actually happy at all. It's one of the most horrible chapters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. So in all seriousness, please be aware that this chapter and my synopsis will include depictions of rape, violence against children, and mental and physical torture and murder. So if you need to step away from this chapter, no shame from us. Arya had learned fear on the road to Harrenhal, but before they had even departed from the village she was taken prisoner in, she had learned the true nature of it. Eight days she had lingered there before the mountain gave the command to march, and every day she had seen someone die. 
The mountain would daily come into the storehouse and pick someone new to, quote, interrogate. The small folk wouldn't look him in the eye, perhaps hoping that this would result in them not being picked. But it didn't matter. Those people got picked, too. A girl who had, quote, shared a soldier's bed for three days was picked on the fourth day. The soldier said nothing. Another old man claimed that he was all for Joffrey and that his son was serving in King's Landing as a gold cloak. He got picked on the fifth day. A mom revealed everything to the mountain in exchange for them sparing her daughter. But then Gregor picked her daughter the next day to ensure that the woman held nothing back. The ones chosen were questioned in full view of the other captives so they could see the fate of rape, so they could see the fate of rebels and traitors. A man the others called the tickler asked the questions. His face was ordinary, his garb so plain that Arya might have thought him one of the villagers before she had seen him at his work. Tickler makes them howl so hard they piss themselves, old stoop shoulder Shiswick told them. He was the man she'd tried to bite who called her a fierce little thing and smashed her head with a bailed fist. Sometimes he helped the tickler. Sometimes others did that. Sir Gregor Clegane himself would stand motionless, watching and listening until the victim died. The questions were always the same. Was there gold in the village? Silver? Gems? Was there any food? Where was Lord Beric Dondarrion? Which of the villager folks had aided him? When he rode off, where did he go? How many men were with him? How many knights? How many bowmen? How many men at arms? How were they armed? How many were horsed? How many were wounded? What other enemy had they seen? How many? When? What banners did they fly? Where did they go? Was there gold in the village? Silver? Gems? Where was Lord Beric Dondarrion? How many men were with him? The questions brought little gold, a little silver, a sack of copper pennies, and a goblet. And the information gleaned about Lord Beric Dondarrion was contradictory at best. Yet no one survived the tickler, man, woman, or child. Arya hates herself for not doing anything about the evil occurring, but worse, she hates herself for not being brave like a water dancer, like Sirio. She was nearly as sheep-like as the villagers, and she had lost the secret she had been guarding since the end of A Game of Thrones. She was not, in fact, a boy. She was a girl. And that had come out on the road to Harrenhal to hot pie astonishment. Meanwhile, the last dragoons allowed no one to talk. Arya got punched in the face to remind her of that, but she had it lucky. A three-year-old boy wouldn't stop calling for his dad, so the mountain's men smashed his face in with a spiked mace and then murdered the screaming mother. Arya watched them die and did nothing. What could it do to be brave? One of the women picked for questioning had tried to be brave, but she had died screaming like all the rest. There were no brave people on the march, only scared and hungry ones. Those brutalized were mostly women, children, and very young or very old men, boys. The rest had been left hanging on the gibbet to be savaged by wolves. Gendry only survived because he was too valuable as a smith. In a speech just prior to departing the lake town, Gregor Clegane had told the villagers that they were being given a second chance from committing their treasons. They would serve Lord Tywin Lannister at Harrenhal. The small folk had whispered that night that they hadn't done any treason. Brotherhood Without Banners just took what they wanted and moved on. And sure, yeah, they didn't hurt anyone, but their quote-unquote payment was a laughable scrap of paper. An old man declares that none of this would have happened if the old king was around. When Arya asks if he means Robert, the old man replies, no, no, Eris. He got his last two teeth punched out for that by the mountain's bend. Before departing the lake town, Gregor and his boys had packed lots of forage to bring to Harrenhal, i.e. food that they stole from the small folk. Then they left for the great castle, but the horrors didn't end at the village. Every night, the women were raped by Gregor's soldiers. Arya observes that the women all expected this, and then one pretty girl was raped over and over again each night by four or five separate guardsmen. Finally, she took a rock to one of Gregor's men, and the mountain beheaded her for it, and left the rest of her body for the wolves. Arya had gotten to know all of the mountain's men in the time they'd been together. It was necessary for survival. She had to know who was lazy, cruel, smart, stupid. She learned that one soldier named Shitmouth cursed something crazy, but he gave you another piece of bread if you asked. Others, like the quieter Raff and the Jolly Chiswick, would only backhand the peasants if they spoke to them. Arya nourishes the hate she has for all the mountains men, but she extends that hate to all the people who'd done her and her family wrong in the past, encapsulating everything into her famous prayer. Every night, Arya would say their names. Sir Gregor, she whispered to her stone pillow. Dunson, Poliver, Chiswick, Raff the Sweetling. The Tickler and the Hound, Sir Amory, Sir Illyn, Sir Marin, King Joffrey, Queen Cersei. Back in Winterfell, Arya had prayed with her mother in the Sept and with her father in the Godswood, but there were no gods on the road to Harrenhal, and her names were the only prayers she cared to remember. 
Every day the party marches, but then the forest thins and they come into a land of rolling hills, streams, fields, and of course, quote, husks of burnt holdfasts. The massive towers of Harrenhal then appear in the distance. The small folk try to reassure each other that it'll be better in Harrenhal, but Arya isn't so sure. She's heard all the stories that old Nan used to tell about this, tell about the castle. Arya thinks they'll make Harrenhal shortly, but it ends up taking nearly two full days to reach the castle. Before they even get to the castle, the stink of the shitty Lannister army encamped outside hits Arya's nose. And when they finally arrive, Arya sees that the latrines are all overflowing. Lovely. Harrenhal's gatehouse itself was as large as Winterfell's Great Keep, was as scarred as it was massive, its stones fissured and discolored. From outside, only the tops of five immense towers could be seen beyond the walls. The shores of them was half again as tall as the highest tower in Winterfell, but they did not soar the way a proper tower did. Arya thought they looked like some old man's gnarled, knuckly fingers groping after a passing cloud. She remembered Nan telling how the stone had melted and flowed like candle wax down the steps, and in the windows glowing a sullen searing red as it sought out Heron where he hid. Arya could believe every word. Each tower was more grotesque and misshapen than the last, lumpy and runnelled and cracked. Hapai isn't about to go in as he's heard about the ghosts being in Harrenhal, but Chiswick smiles and says that Hot Pie will have to join the ghosts, or become one. Hot Pie goes in. Two old women known as, quote, good wives supervise the bathing and scrubbing of the small folk before assigning the small folk to taskmasters for work, or more accurately, slave masters for Tywin Lannister's slave labor camp. When Arya is presented to them, they wrongly determine that the blisters on Arya's hand are from churning butter rather than practicing with needle. They ask her name, and Arya thinks for a moment before stating that her name is Weasel. They decide to put Arya to work in the kitchens, but Arya, thinking of a spot where she might escape a little better, says that she can work in the stables. Goodwife Hera slaps Arya and tells her to shut up or lose her tongue. They're not interested in her views. But now that Arya has demonstrated how willful she is, they're not going to send her to the kitchens after all. They're going to send her along with six others to Weeze, who turns out to be the understeward for the Wailing Tower at Harrenhal. Arriving, Arya encounters a squat man with a, quote, fleshy carbuncle of a nose and a nest of angry red boils near one corner of his plump lips, who turns out to be the aforementioned stu- understeward Weeze. He informs them that if they work hard, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, the Lannisters will reward them generously. But if they presume on Tywin's kindness, Weeze will be waiting for them. So they're never to look at the highborn in the eye, nor speak unless spoken to nor apparently even get in the way of Tywin or his crony war criminals. My nose never lies, he boasted. I could smell a defiance. I could smell pride. I could smell disobedience. I catch a whiff of any such stinks. You'll answer for it. When I sniff you, all I want to smell is fear. And that is, thankfully, the end of the synopsis for A Clash of Kings, Arya 6. Uh, you know, in the pre-episodes, I said this chapter is difficult to get through. It's on par with the Game of Thrones, Danny 7, with all its depictions of the, of the war crimes that are going on here. But, you know, in contrast to Danny Seven, there's no hope for salvation. There's no Danny who could save a few of the people here. There's only sheepishness. Sheepish. There's only sheepishness. <laughs> you got this. Oh, thanks, man. There's only sheepishness and trying not to get picked. Can can we just go back to the Tyrion chapters at this point? Now, but there's so much more fun <laughs> than this chapter. Oh, wait, you think that might be the point that George is making here? Absolutely. There's a reason he keeps chasing these Tyrion chapters with these Arya chapters as like a, a bitter wake-up call. And like an open wound from which rot spreads, Arya Six in particular infects the whole of A Clash of Kings. This chapter was waiting for us all along, lurking behind the wheeling and dealing in the King's Landing chapters, the messianic proclamations in the Dragonstone chapters, all the negotiations worked out comfortably in both North and South amidst food and wine and song. Arya Six strips it all away. This, this is what the War of Five Kings really looks like for the people in its way. And for both Arya and the audience, there is no turning back. It's one of the most effective horror chapters in the series, and in my opinion, this is the heart of the anti-war themes in A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you're right about also the pleasantries and the pageantry and the wine and Tyrion Lannisters. I believe that they call this war, all that shit that occurs at the Ivory Towers of Power, all it does is it works to obscure what's occurring at the ground level of the actual war. I mean, the shitty conduct of the Lannister army, which in this chapter gets a nice bit of symbolism by the overflowing latrines outside of the castle of Harrenhal, is both an issue of wartime practice, but also a critique of the larger class structure of Westeros and our own society via the scale of the atrocities that are going on in and around Harrenhal and by the, and by the Lannister army. 
you know, war is giving already evil people. You know, we will talk about this in the next Arya chapter. There's Chiswick's really horrific story at the end of Arya 7, which uh, about the rape of the innkeeper's daughter and the murder of his son. And, you know, this, this is a really terrible story. And all of that is and war is giving people the opportunity to do that type of evil on an industrial scale, the Lancers in particular. And as horrible as the rape of the innkeeper's daughter and murder of his son was from Arya 7, and as disquieting as Ned finds the reported atrocities of Gregor Clegane's keep back in A Game of Thrones, Gregor's crimes are isolated with the great lords of Westeros unaware or, more likely, turning a blind eye to those crimes. But now war is here, but now war is here, and instead of an inn or the keep of an annoyed knight, rapes, murders, tortures that were once isolated are now common practice by Lancer goons and sanctioned by one of the most powerful lords in Westeros, Tywin Lancer. But he's not alone. There's going to be other lords as well, other lords who are ostensibly on the side of good that are also going to be sanctioning the same types of actions and sanctioning them at Harrenhal itself, too. As you say, it's this pre-existing evil that's being shaped into a part of the war that's being used as a tool. And above all, this chapter is about that tool. It's about the psychological impact of torture. The strategies people use to escape it, what happens inside you when those strategies fail, and how that psychological impact fits within a larger political and military landscape. Now, Arya 6 is not, for the most part, about the physical impact of torture, which is something George dwells on elsewhere. Stony Sept, later in Arya's story in The Storm of Swords, Marine when Danny crucifies the Masters, and so on. He cuts that all away here, in part because he just knows how much more effective our imagination will be if left to its own devices, but also because he wants us to linger instead in the more psychologically devastating pockets of this chapter. Torture changes the human brain, for the victims, for the perpetrators, for the witnesses, in ways that in real life we are barely coming to terms with. In some respects, there is no coming back from what happens to Arya in this chapter, and she suffers less than many of those around her do. Death is truly a mercy for those who undergo torture at the hands of the tickler. And while that feeds perfectly into the themes of Arya's story regarding Beric and Sandor and the Faceless Men, in this case it speaks to the true horror of these atrocities that the person left at the other end would have death as a preferable option. Gregor is deliberately trying to break down the defenses of his prisoners, and he does so with a lethal mixture of randomness and routine the mark of an experienced tormentor. We also see it with Ramsay and Euron later in the series. On the one hand, Gregor dictates every hour of the prisoners' lives, ensuring that if they so much as talk too loud, they get horribly punished. Rape is constant and seems expected. The torture questions are always the same, repeated again and again, grinding the mind into an established pattern. Even though these peasants really can't offer up all that much in the way of treasure, and getting intelligence doesn't even seem to be the point, as it quickly becomes clear that no one has reliable information on where Beric Dondarrion is, or who's fighting with them, or where, you know, where they rode off to. The fact that they're doing all these tortures out in the open, and that we have the small folk who are witnessing what's going to be asked, there's no sense that they're trying to separate people out and determine the veracity of the truth statements that the small folk would make about Beric Dondarrion. There's something else at work there. And I mean, plus the point that becomes, has really become crystallized by recent events is that torture doesn't work as a means of extracting intelligence. I mean, people will say anything to make the pain stop, including lies. And it's, you know, it's kind of worthy in this chapter that the small folk, they do have kind of idea of Beric Dondarrion's actions and where he was going. Yet all they offer to their oppressors is contradiction and, and misinformation. Intentional, unintentional, it's unclear. I like to think it's a statement of resistance against what Beric and Darian and what people and what the High Lords of Westeros are doing to the small folk in Westeros. But I can I'm fully, but I fully can see that, that could be a very optimistic view of what's actually occurring in this chapter and what's occurring with the small folk in the relation to Gregor's men. It's a relevant question because what Gregor seems to be after, instead of hard intelligence is an attack on the idea of resistance at its psychological root, preventing these peasants from even conceiving of the idea of Beric Dondarrion's revolution or any other kind of revolution. And that's where the randomness comes in. While Gregor enforces a punishing routine on his victims, he works to prevent them from finding any refuge in their own routines. Because each of them tries, as anyone would in this situation, to find strategies that will allow them to carve out a space in which they can survive, weather Gregor's storm, and he will not let them. He specifically targets those who seem to be finding strategies, sex with a soldier, loyalty to Joffrey, giving up information voluntarily. And by torturing and killing those employing these strategies, he is saying that these things do not matter to him and will not save your life. You have no strategies because you are not people. You are sheep to be shorn. Hmm. Per Schindler's list, Gregor has set no rules that you can live by. 
And yeah, it should be said that the war did not make Gregor this way. As we will see, as you were pointing out in Arya's next chapter, he and his boys are behaving this way before the war broke out. Nor is it the case that all soldiers at war inherently behave this way. The point is that the war has provided more opportunities for atrocities like this on a larger scale, and consequences for the perpetrators are even less likely now. The war blasts down the walls of society, and men like this come swarming in. We will see this with the Bloody Mummers later on in the Riverlands, and with men like Axel Florent and Clayton Suggs and Stannis' camp, and so forth. But I would argue that none strike so vividly as this presentation of irresponsible authority, killers and torturers with no humanity given the full weight of the state behind them. This is the war machine that a young George R. R. Martin wanted no part in, and I think the feeling he wishes to instill in us here is that the only reason to pick up a sword is to do as the Brotherhood does, defend the people from these monsters to the end. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, we, we, we talked at the end of A Game of Thrones in Tyrion's final chapter, that great council scene with Tywin Lannister, where he says, send, dispatch Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch, and I want to fire from the god's eye to the black water. We look at that at a conceptual 10,000 foot level, and we don't, we're like Tyrion, we're looking at it, and it's like, a, that's what they call that war, right? If we're not actually being exposed to it, which is why it's so important that we have this Arya chapter here to show us what that actually means and what Tywin is doing, because it's not simply that Gregor Clegane is acting out of bounds he's doing exactly as his lord as the highest lord of if not as one of the highest if not the highest lord in westeros is ordering his men to do and i think that's in my mind and you know this is this is up for debate i completely can see that as well the concept of a song of ice and fire and george r, r. martin is strictly anti-war falls flat and yes george has talked about that he would have fought in world war ii and things like that but he was a conscientious resistor to the vietnam war but i mean something i think about is a lot of how when the government, in this case the Lannisters, if you want to call them the government, when they become lawless brigands, the only recourse is picking up a sword. And this is the point we talked about back in episode 75, the one hell yeah moment in Arya's chapters when the Night's Watch recruits stand up to the gold cloaks who are trying to arrest Gendry and they pick up, you know, makeshift weapons to resist. The whole idea of my sword is the law is that one Lannister goon, Lannister, that, one, that one gold cloak goon had talked about. The problem, though, is in this chapter and the chapters to come afterwards, for the small folk and Arya, they don't have any means of resisting. There's no makeshift weapons to pick up. There's no figure, inspirational figure in the form of Yorm to lead the charge. They're sheep, and it's really fucking horrible what happens to them in this chapter. And When we say anti-war, we can sometimes be too broad. I think for me what that means is... Uh, an instinctive skepticism towards violence employed by the state. Sure. An instinctive skepticism towards the idea that that's ultimately going to be an instrument of good, even if used with the best of intentions. I certainly wouldn't apply the same rationale to people picking up arms to defend themselves from oppressive institutions coming down on top of them. I think all else being equal, which of course it never is, <laughs> you know, ethically, I think violence from the bottom up is different from the top down. So I, again, these are broad rules. It's more about like sympathy towards skepticism and which kind of violence I think earns sympathy versus skepticism but those, those are good points well thank you sir and you make great points that yeah the, the ultimate problem is that there's no means of resistance right now anyway regardless of how you think about these things Arya's not in a position to pick up a sword and defend the people from these these horrible uh, lords and their brigands Arya six is about powerlessness mm -hmm. from the opening words of this chapter our attention is drawn to how this theater of cruelty is breaking down Arya's defenses leaving her vulnerable in the void fear cuts deeper than swords Arya would tell herself but that did not make the fear go away the mentor can't help you now, kid. All those mantras that you've been given that are supposed to guide you through your coming of age, allowing for your heroic self-actualization in a hostile world, they've crumbled in the face of just how hostile that world can be. Mm -hmm. Arya never imagined anything like this. Micah's death, Sirio's, the stable boys, the attack on the Tower of the Hand, her starvation and fear of assault on the streets of King's Landing, even the execution of her father. Nothing came close to this. And she reacts in a multitude of ways, as with the other prisoners, cycling desperately through strategies to survive. Arya's psyche is torn loose and fluttering through options. Multiple places she can try and deposit her anger and pain and fear. And in part, she blames herself. This is what she tells herself early on in the chapter. She's not a wolf. She's not a water dancer. She couldn't even keep the, quote, stupid secret of her gender now rendered moot. She feels in some way that it's her fault that she's this powerless. Yeah, I mean, the, all those defenses that Arya has surrounded herself with, the armor that she's encased herself with, have all been stripped from her violently. As she says and thinks in this chapter, the Lannisters had taken everything, father, friends, home, hope, courage. One had taken needle, while another had broken her wooden stick sword over his knee. You know, Ned, Sirio, and Yorin had protected Arya, and they were all dead now. 
Her Stark name and status as the daughter of one of the highest lords of Westeros, Ned Stark. That had also been taken from her when she entered into the streets of King's Landing after the attack on the Tower of the Hand. Arya had become a, quote, boy to prevent her rape and murder at Yoren's insistence. And now she was revealed to be a girl and left vulnerable to rape. And, you know, she does not, in this chapter, she's in, in the Clash of Kings, she's not specifically raped, but Rorge is going to continuously threaten to rape her. And she's going to feel his eyes all over her in the coming Arya chapters in the Clash of Kings. The neutrality of the Night's Watch, you know, Yoren's calling card, gone. Amory Lorch didn't care that the Night's Watch took no part in the wars of the realm. And finally, and most significantly for Arya's arc, progressing forward, her means of self-defense and her identity as a Stark, Needle, and her wooden sword were stolen or broken, respectively. You know, the sense I get from Arya's clash and storm chapters is how Needle works as a stand-in to her Stark identity. And now that Needle's been stolen from her, her last connections to her Stark identity are temporarily missing, and she will recover them at the end of A Clash of Kings, or excuse me, at the end of A Storm of Swords. Arya has been forced into becoming no one long before she tries to pass herself off as such the House of Black and White. The irony is in A Feast for Crows is that she's regained Needle and won't part from it. And so she's, you know, and then she frames it as a simple avenge. No, she frames it as Jon Snow's spile in, in A Feast for Crows. So she, so the kindly man knows that she's lying in A Feast for Crows is that back and forth dialogue that they have. But here she could probably pass herself off as no one because everything has been taken from her. She's become no one in A Clash of Kings. And thankfully, at the end of everything of Clash of Kings, she does regain some of her semblance of identity. Mm, that's great stuff, man. You can see even though how Arya's story and Bravos and the Riverlands are different in so many ways, it's that those same questions of how do you react to violence and death and the challenges they pose to your identity. And again, sometimes that just turns inward. Like Arya tells herself that her heroes wouldn't have gone down like this. None of these things could have possibly happened to a badass like Sirio Pharrell or a proper Stark like her father, so she must be doing it wrong. The failure must be in her. Now, of course, Arya knows better than this at some level, because Sirio and Ned were put to their deaths by Lannister men. They weren't immune to any of this. But she cannot deal with their downfall as idealistic figures in her mind, because they are her safety valve in the midst of all this, connecting to home. They are a way out of this nightmare. And this is especially true coming off the death of Yorin, as you say, another mentor figure. So instead, she blames herself for failing to live up to the image, as in A Storm of Swords, when she thinks Catelyn and Rob might not want her back because she's not a proper lady. Like, these are some of the most devastating notes in Arya's chapters. Of course, she also blames the right people, namely the Lannisters. <laughs> And in doing so, she finds a coping strategy that at least temporarily works for her. A kill list. An itemized promise to strike back. And we will talk more about the future of this list toward the end of this episode, and more in later Arya chapters, of course, about the effect of violence on her soul and so forth. <laughs> but it is important to say here, where the list begins, that it, it does not speak to vengeful violence for its own sake on Arya's part. Rather, it represents an acceptance that the universe is random. It will not punish the wicked nor uplift the downtrodden. It's up to her. As Stannis puts it earlier in the book, in King's Landing, the High Septon would prattle at me of how all justice and goodness flowed from the Seven. But all I ever saw of either was made by men. So for Arya, this list is an oasis. It's an ember of her old self, a private insistence that what has been done to her and the people she cares about matters and must be set to right. We can talk and will talk about the means by which she does so and what happens to her along the way, but that is the emotional core of it, not bloodthirst. And I think it's extremely powerful as a note of resistance within this, the context of this very bleak chapter. That's a brilliant point. I think that so many people, well, they hear the list, they hear the prayer that Arya makes, and they immediately associate it with her need and her desire to exact vengeance on those people who have done her and her family great wrong. But here, it's it's not that. It's a recognition that, like you said, the universe is random, but she is trying to add a little bit of order into the randomness of the universe that is surrounding her. But for now, that randomness is all that's around her, and also around her, too, are all the small folk that are being taken as chattel slavery up to Harrenhal. Exactly. Arya 6 isn't just about Arya. She is put in context. George zooms out to take in how the people at large are responding to this uprooting and assault on their rights. And in part, of course, Arya also blames them for what's happening to them. She hates them for being sheep like her, for just letting this happen. And while that is the take of a child, of course, frustrated by her own powerlessness and desperate to find an adult still worthy of her trust, it focuses our attention on the small folk as political actors, even as they're stripped of their agency. How does it feel to be treated like sheep, to be treated like you're not a human being? It's disassociative. I mean, for Arya specifically, and you have to imagine it's the same for the small folk there. And a lot of Arya's disassociation from her identity can be traced back to events from A Game of Thrones after the attack on the Tower of the Hand. But the violent ripping of Arya from being Arya really starts with Arya witnessing the tortures, rapes, and murders and being unable to do anything about them. 
Instead of a human, she's become a sheep to be shorn by Tywin's creatures in the village and the road and in Harrenhal itself. And then in the castle of Harrenhal, she'll associate her status as a slave and her gray garb as becoming a mouse under weeds, attempting to hide in the vastness of Harrenhal. But, you know, Jack and Hagar comes in Arya Seven of a Clash of Kings, and his promise of three, and in that promise of three lives, she'll feel less a mouse and a part of the curse of Harrenhal, becoming the ghost of Harrenhal, wielding jacket against Chiswick Weiss, and later on behalf of the of the of the Captain Northman. It's only in her final Clash chapter that Arya decides that she's done with wooden teeth, and through a combination of warging Nymeria, hearing about Roose Bolton hunting hunting wolves, and her desire not to be left at Harrenhal under the command of Argohod, that she establishes herself as a wolf again, as a dire wolf. So it's a great arc, and I love the use of animals that George is integrating into A Clash of Kings and into Arya's story specifically in order to speak of her emerging and her growing identity and evolution as a character. As we said in our recent Patreon episode, Flag Day, there's that great line from Illyrio in our Dance with Dragons where he talks about how Westerosi lords foolishly project themselves into their sigils, and you really think you are all wolves or lions or dragons. But it also works at this kind of very personal emotional level where it's a it's a way for Arya to conceive of what's happening to her because everything that's led up to this in her life suggests that people shouldn't be treated like this. And in part, of course, that's Arya because Arya was raised as a noble and a lot of the imagery you're talking about is tied to her identity to House Stark and that does separate her from a lot of the small folk around her, including Gendry. But the small folk are going through a, a very similar experience in some ways because they're not all just being erased. They're not all just being tortured and killed off. The survivors are being marched to Harrenhal to serve as slave labor to Tywin Lannister and his occupying army. We get our first hint of this when Arya tells us why Gendry is still, you know, alive, despite being a physically strong man and so therefore a threat. Well, he's a smith, and they're too valuable to kill in wartime. So now the people aren't just sheep to be shorn, they're active beasts of burden who have to labor on behalf of their slave masters. Gregor informs them that this is their proper fate as traitors and rebels against the crown. And God, does that stick in my craw. This is so galling on a number of levels. First of all, it was Gregor who broke the king's peace in the first place. He's the only rebel here. None of these peasants control which side their lords fight for anyway. Moreover, none of them seem to have directly fought in the war at all. You have the, the one man everyone calls Alfred Joffrey, who was tortured and killed despite his loyalty to the Lannisters. So much for serve, obey, and live, as Gregor tells them. That didn't work out so well for Alfred Joffrey. Ultimately, of course, also, Gregor is lying that this is a better deal than they'd get from Beric who, as we'll see in A Storm of Swords, would not do this to the small folk. He would protect and support them. And the people, when they get a chance to talk among themselves, know that they're being stripped of their rights and held responsible for the Lord's actions. They know that this is wrong. Not just like, you know, people are violating my body and torturing me, but politically, this is not what's allowed to happen. This is this is ethically wrong. George makes clear that while the Starks and Tullys are led by more sympathetic characters on the whole than the Lannisters, a more likable raider is still a raider. And for these people, land was all they had. It was the source of what political influence and power they had in Westeros. There's the one prisoner who she looked about to see that no guards were near and spat three times. There's for the Tullys, and there's for the Lannisters, and there's for the Starks. All three for her. Hmm. Yes, it's the Lannisters who are directly killing and torturing and raping them right now. But their own lords abandoned them at best. And some of them go farther than that. We heard about crop burnings all across the Riverlands, and then there's they lay with lions from a storm of swords. The small folk quite rightfully hate all the elites who have stolen their livelihood, transforming them from people who, yeah, were poor, but they worked their own land. And now they've been transformed to people who own nothing, at the mercy of taskmasters who work them to the bone in exchange for scraps. As with the little, who offers hospitality to Bran and his companions in the Storm of Swords, the small folk here argue that the social contract has broken down, and speak wistfully of a time when a benevolent central authority maintained the peace. And that is when Arya finally speaks up, because this is a topic she knows something about. She wasn't exactly happy in her old life, but she very much understands the break between the stable past and the chaotic present. And for her, the king associated with the former relatively better era is Robert, who was king all her young life. But that's not the king the other prisoners are talking about. Their old king is King Aerys, God's grace him. And that completely transforms the story. Everything we've been fed about the Mad King for a book and a half has framed him as the embodiment of villainous power, a paranoid sadist rendered predatory on a continental scale by the crown on his head. He is dead and good riddance. That's the message we've received, and we've only seen the tip of the iceberg. We're going to continue to learn worse and worse things about Eris as we go. Just wait until we get to A Storm of Swords. <laughs> Eris is the standard by which all the horrific abuses of power in A Song of Ice and Fire are set. Just look at when Tyrion refers to Joffrey as Eris III and how freaked out that makes Tywin. And yet here we have the people 
telling us that they are nostalgic for him. Mm. This is one of the most powerful challenges to our perspective in A Song of Ice and Fire, because it forces us to consider how Eris's crimes, horrific as they were, were concentrated among his own class and so don't matter much to the masses. While the death of a popular lord might work to rally the troops into battle lust in the moment, it rarely lingers long-term as a political organizing principle for the small folk. Ned Stark is a rare exception. <laughs> Most of these guys don't merit public memory. There's an entire world flickering by under the eyes of our POV characters. The peasants just have a totally different understanding of what's important in Westeros. And who are we to say that they're wrong? I, they're, they're not precisely wrong. I mean, I mean, we, we know who Ares the second Targaryen is, but, you know, Ares and Robert, for lack of a better term, had a bit nine-ish neglect when it comes to the small folk and, and that they weren't actively trying to kill them, rape them, torture them, and extract them for the value of their labor. For free, of course, slave labor, that is. And I mean, bear in mind, too, like, Aerys II Targaryen, like you were saying, he's targeting the highborn, the nobles. He kills Rickard and Brandon Stark. He kills Lord Dennis Darkland, his wife, Sorala Mir, and all of House Hollard, save for Dantos, who is saved by Barristan Selmy after the defiance of Duskendale. He also murders his mistress and her entire family. And of course, it should be noted that under Ares, Tywin undid the small folk reforms that Aegon V Targaryen instituted. So it's not so Ares was looking out for the small folk during his reign. But he wasn't actively targeting them, or at least they're not aware that he was actively targeting them for murder in the same way that he was targeting the highborn and those within the palace walls of the Red Keep. And now, of course, like you were saying in A Storm of Swords, we will find out from Jamie Lannister that he was actively targeting the small folk in King's Landing and prepared to murder 500,000 people. But no one besides Jamie Lannister knows that, and none of these small folk who are in Arya's company know that, and that lack of knowledge makes them, like you said, nostalgic for it. And nostalgia is such a such a powerful force in the narrative from characters as far as Robert Baratheon to these small folk who are being marched to Harrenhal. Nostalgia. It can be good in some places. It can be bad. Having people remember the past in a kind of hallowed lens that wasn't necessarily true in, in reality. As you say, we just have way more information than these characters do, and we will only get more so as the story goes on. We're also dealing with a pre-modern society. There's no printing press here. It's very difficult for, like, you know, detailed information about who in the government was doing what to spread. So, you know, this this, is necess- this isn't necessarily supposed to change our opinion of the Mad King. This doesn't transform Eris into a good guy. It doesn't change the ramifications of what he did. But George is preventing us from simplifying the questions he is raising in this chapter. What does it mean that people undergoing torture embraced a king who loved torture? It means there are no simple solutions to the problem of power. There is no silver bullet to make this stuff stop. You have to think about it really, really deeply. And George R. R. Martin hasn't, even still, I don't think he has exactly what you'd call a solution. <laughs> I just I just think he's taking us deeper into the complications. But, you know, everything about this chapter so far has been a prologue. Everything about the <laughs> book so far points us at our destination <laughs> in this chapter. Black Heron's Folly, the half-melted, blood-soaked, shit-stained epicenter of the war, my favorite setting in A Song of Ice and Fire, Heron Hall. Please tell the people why you love this motherfucking castle, because, oh my god, I hate this castle. I mean, I understand it's huge and immense and awful and full of black magic and horror and murder and death yep. from its... From soup to nuts. So, All that. so wh- why, do why. You, why do you <laughs> use this person that I consider one of my really good friends loves Hall so much? I just want... I just want to know personally, and I know all the people will do, because we've been setting this up for months at this point of why Hall is an amazing place that you have, you know, put a lot of value into. So why do you put value into this castle of Hall? I mean, in part, it's just because I was raised on settings like this place. <laughs> I love the aesthetic of a giant, crumbling, haunted castle whose backstory is overflowing with horror. That's my shit. It's Gormenghast. <laughs> it's Baradur, only bigger, uglier, scarier, bloodier. It's a gothic nightmare dropped in the middle of medieval fantasy, and I love it for that. But I also love the execution of Harrenhal as a dramatic setting, how it feeds into the political gamesmanship, the magical backdrop, and the character arcs that play out within its walls. Like Winterfell and Dragonstone, Harrenhal sits at the crossroads of the political and magical history of Westeros and traces the relationship between the two. That makes it the perfect big new setting for Clash of Kings because, as I keep saying, this book is about the intertwining of the political and magical worlds. Yet the tone for all three castles is really different. Winterfell is a source of strength and selfhood, even or especially when it falls apart. Dragonstone is more uh, ambiguous, associated with both righteousness and horror at different points in its history. 
Heron Hall is a straight-up horror show. No one is happy here but the monsters. And these differing tones reflect the different origins of the three castles and the different trajectories of their owners. Winterfell is built on a life-saving hot spring, whose bounty, as we, saw, as we saw in Brand 3, is shared with all. It's the home of House Stark, the protagonists, the good guys who, you know, do things like that. Dragonstone meant life for House Targaryen after the Doom. It's got dragon glass at its heart, dragon glass that could help save the world from the White Walkers. But the island fortress is also associated with corruption from Rhaenyra to Stannis. The gods flip a coin, you might say, every time someone takes charge of Dragonstone, and it comes down on greatness or madness. Harrenhal is the worst of all possible worlds. Political monstrosity combined with magical calamity to produce an open sore on both planes that seems to devour its owners alive. Black Heron was a brutal ruler who beggared the Riverlands to build a castle too big for anyone to hold properly despite its prime location. And no sooner had he completed his statement of power than Aegon the Conqueror turned up to make it completely irrelevant. What was all that blood and turmoil for? And you might say the same about the War of Five Kings when we know that both the Others and Daenerys are coming. But Harrenhal's statement about the folly of power is timeless. It applies to the rise and fall of every powerful person we see not only in the series but also the backstory. You strive for the sky, Harrenhal's towers, as Arya says, like so many fingers grasping at a star. But it burns you alive, your ambition rendered moot by fire and blood, by death. Harrenhal as it exists now represents what gets spat out the other side, a ghost of power that cannot be possessed without sealing your own doom. And really, Aegon's conquest, filtered specifically through the lens of Harrenhal, doesn't really feel like liberation, even though the River Lords rose up against the Ironborn and joined Aegon happily. It feels more like... Like yet another coat of blood, like repainting a red room after you move in. Egan didn't wipe away Black Heron's horrors so the people could start over. He immortalized them. Dragon fire fusing weirwood and unholy matrimony, sedimentary layers of suffering warped and transformed until they become an all-encompassing aura of obscene evil. After all, Harrenhal sits on the shore of the God's Eye, in which sits the Isle of Faces, the center of the continent, the heart of magic where the pact between man and children of the forest was made. You can see Harrenhal is like... An ant burnt by divine fire focused through a glass. The god's eye has been compared in Arya chapters to like a looking glass or a mirror. Harrenhal is, is, is like an insect burnt by the sun focused through a magnifying glass. And Harrenhal cannot be separated from either its political or magical legacies. To do so is to miss the point, because the point is the combination. Before the Shadow Babies, before Euron begins his conquest, before Danny's dragons grow big enough to ride... We see the synthesis of the human will to power and the inhuman power of magical transcendence here at Harrenhal. It's a sword without a hilt, a fiery ladder, your fall from which is made all the more devastating by how high power of all kinds allowed you to climb. Oh my God, man, that's wonderfully put. I never really understood Harrenhal the same way that you understood. And I think it's, that's amazing um, to have that. I, I love the imagery that's associated with it. It feels very much like a living human being, even from... The towers being knuckly hands rising up to try and grasp a, a cloud. It's that kind of same idea we get from John Connington. He tried to grasp a star, overreached and fell. I mean, Heron the Black definitely had that going for him. He tried to build the greatest castle in all of Westeros the same day that Aegon the Conqueror landed on the shores of what would become King's Landing. And that same idea with season eight in mind, the backstory of Heron Hall to me feels like George's trial or dry run for the apotheosis of King's Landing at the end of the story. Like Heron Hall's many rulers and houses lording over the castle, King's Landing once had Targaryens that built the city and ruled there. Then the Baratheons held it for a time. Then the Lasters, soon young Griff. And as Catelyn put it back in Clash King's Catelyn 1, and when at last Heron Hall stood complete on the very day King Heron took up residence, Aegon the Conqueror had come ashore at King's Landing. So in that moment of greatest triumph for Heron the Black, his doom landed on the shores of Westeros. And so too, I imagine, we will talk about this significantly as we get into Storm and the Dance with Dragons, I imagine young Griff's moment of triumph in taking King's Landing will occur likely possibly on the same day his and King's Landing doom in the form of Danny is sealed as Danny lands on Dragonstone and brings dragons again. So, you know, a lot of times when I'm looking at what George is doing ultimately in doing these kind of set pieces like Harrenhal and like King's Landing is that he seems to be building things up in the backstory and in the current time period that the characters are, are living in in order to set up the end game for another location for a larger location Heron Hall was the greatest and largest castle of all of Westeros King's Landing is the largest and greatest city in all of Westeros and they're both going to beat the business end of Dragonfire and Heron Hall did that once before King's Landing has it coming soon I agree you have to weave together the world building and the character arcs you have to make them support each other 
and make each one make the other one stronger. Everything we're discussing is big picture stuff, so what does any of this have to do with Arya's story and the specific plot beats of the war unfolding in the Riverlands? Hall in this chapter feels like a magnetic presence sucking Arya in, as if she's con- unconsciously been heading there, not Winterfell all along. And when you think about like you know the, the castles and the and the Riverlands, Arya will eventually be running after River Run in the Storm of Swords. River Run is also a source of family and refuge, like Winterfell, that will bob in front of her like a mirage. But while River Run is nominally the capital of the Riverlands, it's small and out of the way, hardly projecting the presence of Winterfell or Storm's End or Casterly Rock. Harrenhal is the true capital of the Riverlands at war. Mm. This is the, this is the center of gravity, whether for Tywin or Roose or Gregor or Vargo Hote, all the players in the Riverlands. It's also the prize being danced for by social clamors who never even clap eyes on the place, as we've already seen with Janos Slint and will again with Littlefinger. The war, to a large degree, revolves around Harrenhal, which places its center stage in the theater of horrors through which Arya has been trudging in the Clash of Kings so far. It was all to get here. It's like a giant mouth put here by George to swallow her up. All the death and decay and disillusionment given concrete form, mocking her old life and her old self. Again, the contrast with Winterfell. It's as, it's as if... The home of her innocent childhood is gone and replaced by one that bears the scars and horrors of the life she lives now. Harrenhal is a place not only in which Arya will be hurt, but a place in which she will learn how to hurt others, directly and indirectly, deliberately and otherwise. And that's because the castle is an assembly line of evil designed to transform average people into heartless killers and heartless killers into even worse heartless killers. Exactly. I mean, the castle makes the common folk... Tywin's willing executioners and evil people even more heinous in their actions. And it's not just the Lannisters get turned by the castle. At the end of A Clash of Kings, Gendry will talk about the evil being committed in the castle by the Bloody Mummers and Bruce Bolton's Northmen. I hate this slot. Sir Amory was fighting for his lord, but the Mummers are sellswords and turncloaks. Half of them can't even speak the common tongue. Septon Oot likes little boys. Kyburn does black magic. And your friend Biter eats people. Again, it's not as though Amory Lord Shkregel gained the bloody mummers or Steel Shanks Waltons were angels prior to coming to Harrenhal. Rather, it's that the atrocities are scaled up, sanctioned by the High Command, Tywin and Roos. You know, we talk about Tywin Lannister being able to do great evil at Harrenhal. Roos Bolton comes into the picture and knowing some of his backstory from A Dance with Dragons and the evil shit that he was doing when he was ruling the Dreadfort, it all just becomes magnified. It becomes industrial scale, the amount of evil that these people can do and that they're allowed to do by the war in they're allowed to do by the war and specifically at the location of Harrenhal, which is magnifies and intersects with that magic and just simple evil in one singular location. That scaling up is reflected in the castle itself, which is a giant scaled up castle that seems too big, that seems a bigger version of all the other castles, reflecting the size and obscenity of the violence at play. And within Arya's story specifically, Hall takes shape as a fairy tale world of temptation and punishment, fear and desire, the possibility of justice and escape, corrupted by a universe bent on weaponizing her hopes and turning them inward, on her. The sheer size of the place speaks to this sense of unreality around the edges. The sense that Harrenhal is less a man-made fortress than an accidental intrusion from the astral plane like the wall. Hence the off-putting sensation wherein Arya can't tell how close it is as they're, as they're approaching it. Obviously that's a, a real-world aspect of, of, you know, huge or architecturally weird locations, but also just reflects how strange Harrenhal feels. And all of this that we're saying comes together like a perfect disguise around the figure of Jock and Hagar. Arya's next mentor, an emissary of the rising magical tide, like Jojen and Melisandre, and an overwhelming fairy tale-esque presence in her story in every respect. But it's important to note that Harrenhal is not the house of the undying. It doesn't float free in the abstract psychedelic clouds. Hmm. It keeps one foot firmly grounded in everyday reality. George always draws your attention to how the mortal humans passing through this place reshape it to fit their needs, even as it reshapes them in turn. And that's the great contrast, George zooming out like Kubrick and Barry Lyndon to frame these petty abusive tyrants against the grand scale of their inevitable doom. So it's important that Arya is welcomed into Harrenhal, not by, like, a ghostly whisper on the wind that no one else can hear, (laughs) but by the mundane smell of an army encamped here for months, and by two world-weary washerwomen who don't care about the curse, don't care about the war, and do not care that this particular brat is our protagonist. (laughs) They steer her toward the kitchen in an attempt to be helpful. It's a warm, comfortable place with plenty of food. Hot Pie turns out to be right at home there. That's where you go if you're just trying to keep your head down and survive the war. But that's not what Arya is doing. 
She borrows the name Weasel, fitting in with the underfoot theme of her story and the association of small folk with animals throughout this chapter. But on the inside, she is Arya Stark of Winterfell. And Arya Stark of Winterfell wants to escape. And so she wants to work in the stables. But the washerwoman can only interpret this as backtalk and hit her for it. And that's Harrenhal in a nutshell. This overwrought testament to the highest of ambitions. But what it boils down to, what it plays host to, is just the most thoughtless and unnecessary of cruelties. It's human smallness inside human bigness. The worst of both worlds. And that's what Arya has to confront at chapter's end when she meets her new overseer, Weiss. It's interesting that his name reflects hers, her new name, Weiss and Weasel. Mm -hmm. They sound similar, and that signifies that Arya has entered his domain, the domain of the petty tyrants of Harrenhal. The chapter ends by circling back around to fear. We talked about fear at the start of the chapter. Weiss talks about it at the end, because fear is the unifying thread between Weiss and Gregor Clegane, between Heron the Black and Aegon the Conqueror. Arya is learning that her world is built on the spectacle of fearsome acts, and she will struggle to find her place in such a world, and she will do so with the help in her next couple chapters of Jock and Hagar. So we're here in Harrenhal, we're going to be here for a lot of A Clash of Kings, and some in A Storm of Swords, some in A Feast for Crows too, and perhaps again, come the Winds of Winter, we'll be here yet again. I can't wait to come back. Mm-hmm. So... Taking us into foreshadowing and groundwork, something we see George doing here, as he does so many other places in A Clash of Kings, is building up the, repu- rep- is building up the reputation of Beric Dondarrion from afar, before reintroducing him in A Storm of Swords. Here in this chapter, all about the boot crashing down on your neck, he is framed as the one person outside Lannister control, the spark of hope amidst a sea of blood. Then again, while he and Thoros offer some form of payment for what the Brotherhood takes, some of the small folk aren't happy with that either. And that is an interesting complication, that while he is presented as, like, the one way to resist what's going on in this chapter, you know, some of the small folk aren't impressed by him either. Right, and that scrap of paper that they gives that he gives to the Spofolk here is something that's going to be replicated with Sander Clegane after they rob him essentially of all of his gold and they give him a scrap of paper, a receipt saying, hey, you could get this after we after the war is over and we're good for the payment, right? Right? No, no, not at all. But it's a little fun note that gets a repeat beat, comma, storm of swords, which is which I really enjoy. So our little second bit of foreshadowing grammar here is that Arya's never going to get the chance to practice Weiss's command with Tywin Lannister, the small folk must never look at the highborn in the eye, nor speak until spoken to, nor get in his lordship's way. But this does become a bit of a tension point when Roose Bolton becomes Lord of Harrenhal and Arya becomes his cupbearer. You know, the one time Arya presumes to speak to his lordship without being spoken to, Roose casually threatens to cut her tongue, though he does answer her question about whether he's planning on taking her with him whether he whether he's planning to take her with him when he leaves Harrenhal. But again, like the big theme in Arya's story in A Clash of Kings is that she is a part of the small folk and she's learning what it means to be someone who doesn't have a last name, someone who doesn't have the nobility and have the power of her father to protect her. Absolutely. And one of the the main ways she has of controlling and dealing with it, as we said earlier in the chapter, is her kill list. Mm -hmm. And so for our discussion portion of the episode, we wanted to talk about how we think Arya's list is going to play out in the remainder of the books. So in terms of the the people that have been ticked off so far, so to speak, (laughs) Arya herself directly kills the Tickler in A Storm of Swords and Raph the Sweetling in Mercy, her release chapter from The Winds of Winter. She has Jockin kill Chiswick and Weiss over the course of her next two Clash of Kings chapters and is indirectly responsible for Amory Lorch's death in the chapter after that. Sandor kills Polliver in front of her in the Storm of Swords in the same set piece where she kills the Tickler. Uh, Joffrey dies in the Storm of Swords in unrelated circumstances. She hears about it in that same chapter and, of course, she very notably feels empty about it, which I think <laughs> might be a, a guide in terms of how the list is going to work in Arya's story in general. It's less going to be the focus and more something that she, she drifts away from and realizes, oh, that's not how I'm going to find satisfaction. Uh, then there's some interesting things to discuss with the Clegane brothers and their place on this list, because Gregor has technically died, but he's also come back. So, uh, and then you also have Sandor's place on her list. Arya struggles with that over the course of A Storm of Swords, leaves him to die, strongly implied in A Feast for Crows, and by the show that he, in fact, survived. So I'm curious, what do you think is the future of the Clegane brothers' place on Arya's list? Is she going to find out about Gregor being back? What is she going to make of Sandor when they reunite? That's a great question. I think, you know, when we're talking about Gregor and Sandor... They do operate different places in Arya's list because she kind of takes Sandor and puts him on the list, takes her off, the, takes him off the list, and then, of course, like you said, leaves him to die at the end. If you look at Game of Thrones season eight as a guide, it seems like they will come back together at some point. But it's I think it might be a little bit more ambiguous come the books, but we'll have to see as it goes. So in terms of who's still alive on the list, that leaves Cersei, Ilan Payne, Marin Trant, and Dunson, one of the Mountain's men. 
So will Arya play any role in their fates? She did kill Marin Trant in the show, but that was in Bravos, which is where she kills Raph the Sweetling in Mercy. So that might have just been in lieu of Raph because the show never had room for him. And she does also in the show set out to kill Cersei as well before Sandor stops her. But that might be purely an invention of the show. So how do you think these these remaining four names on the list are going to play out? When we look at the locations of the remaining people on Arya's list versus the probability that Arya will get them. We know that Cersei's in King's Landing. And I don't think it's likely that Arya is going to get her because we have the Valonqar prophecy. I think it's unlikely that Arya is going to be the one to kill Cersei. It's likely going to be Jaime in the books. And in the show, it's it's a bit different. Illyn Payne is in the Riverlands. And this is an interesting one because there's that great theory that our friend Adam Feldman has that Illyn Payne will be our wins a winner prologue point of view. And I wonder whether Arya will get the chance to kill Illyn Payne via warging Nymeria. We have that second line from Arya's Mercy chapter. She had dreamed of wolves again, of running through some dark pine forest with a great pack at her heels, hard on the scent of prey. You know, my idea that I've kind of threw out on Twitter recently was that prey that that Nymeria is pursuing is actually the Lannister men who are heading back to Castle Rock as we learn at the end of A Feast for Crows and it's likely going to be a part of the Winds Winter Prologue. Then we have Sir Marin Trant and Dunson. They are in King's Landing and provided that they survive the war with young Griff and Arya makes her way down to King's Landing as she does in Game of Thrones Season 8. I think that Arya might get the opportunity but that kind of brings up the question, the overall question about Arya's story. Is her story ultimately a vehicle for Stark vengeance, or is it more something that we saw in Game of Thrones Season 8, which, in my opinion, they did a little bit artfully, but I think they ultimately kind of not nailed the theme, but I think they, they got it really well. Is Arya's story ultimately the point of it to be turning away from vengeance at the end of her story, of learning from Sandra Clegane's story about what it means and letting that hate fester in him and what that ultimately does to him, and Sandra telling her to go home, child, is that actually what's going to be Arya's story? Is that she turns away from vengeance at the end of her story? Uh, what do you think? I'll, I'll give my I'll give my thoughts after yours. I think that is the overall message, especially given how George handles a needle, which is you know related to the list in some ways in a feast for crows, as you were saying, relating it to home more than vengeance. But it is interesting to me that the specific ways in which Arya dealt with this theme in the last few seasons of the show. Uh, don't seem to be there in the books or they seem to be there but being given to other characters because mm. you know when we talk about Arya being the vehicle for stark vengeance in the show one of the main things we talk about is that her wiping out the phrase and she does uh, mention them in a feast for crows that she would have whispered the names of the phrase of the crossing for her list if she had known them one day i'll know she told herself and then i'll kill them all so that might be something she does in the books as well but the show didn't have Lady Stoneheart, and Lady Stoneheart seems pretty devoted to killing as many frays as possible. <laughs> so I, I tend to think that's that's more her, you know, her more purview. I tend to also think the the, the Arya versus Sansa storyline in season seven that played with this theme was a show invention, mm-hmm. and that Littlefinger's downfall will, I think, be more largely led by Sansa. It might have something to do with Jane Poole and Littlefinger's treatment of her, and she, of course, didn't appear in the show, so that, that plot line wasn't there. So what I'm saying is I think that I, I don't see Arya going down uh, the specific plot beats of the show, and I, I, I ultimately think that the list is something she 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 transcends. I think yeah, I could definitely see a couple more names being ticked off, especially like uh, Marin Trant or Dunson. Uh, and Cersei, yeah, I do think it, it is ultimately Jamie, but I think Arya could still make the attempt and be forced hmm. to turn back or told to turn back, and I could see that being a big moment for her character in both show and books. I, I agree there. I think when we were looking at season eight, we do have Arya and Jamie essentially in the same location attempting to reach Cersei at the end of, of, of their stories. I, I, I agree, though, overall, in that I do think that a lot of Arya's major beats in season seven and season eight of this show are likely going to be taken by different characters. Lady Stoneheart in particular with the phrase, Jamie in particular with Cersei and none of the characters like that. George mix that has that great monologue that Ilaria Sand talks about about in, in A Dance with Dragons with what vengeance actually does and what you are supposed to take away from it. And Ilaria Sand's point simply is that can you take a can you take a skull to bed with you at night? And that I want to say is the ultimate thematic thrust of George R. R. Martin in writing a song of ice and fire. That vengeance is something that ultimately leaves you empty. It hollows you out in the end. It hollows Sandra Clegane out. It ends up leading to his death in the show. I think it's likely going to do similarly in the books. That's not the end that I want for Arya Stark. 
And, you know, a long time ago, in our very first Arya chapter, our first analysis on the Metacast podcast, we talked about whether Arya Stark will die at the end of her story. I had come on to the point that she will die. You had said that she that she won't die. And I think now your point is much more stronger, given, you know, events at the end of season eight of Game of Thrones. I think I think ultimately looking at Arya's storyline, if she ends up choosing the the road of vengeance that it will lead to her death in the books, but if she goes away from that path that she will likely lead to life, that it will likely lead to life and long life, hopefully for her. Putting aside the list, not because you've forgiven what they've done, not because they're fine people who should still be in charge, but because Arya has back the thing that she lost that made her so angry in the first place that made her so full of grief and vengeance home and family and having that back is more important than avenging what she's lost you know grieving grieving together is more important and for all i think the the shortcuts and certain plot beats that didn't work for me on the way i do think the final kind of tableau of season eight with the starks kind of alone together doing the same thing i think resonated especially in terms of Arya's story that i think that is the the perfect uh, appropriate and realistic balance it resonates strongly with me as well, and I agree uh, to my detriment of my past self in 2018 doing the Arya for one episode. Just like Arya Stark, we all evolve, buddy. We all evolve ultimately. So I think that ult- that's a great way to ending this this really crushing chapter. So thank you so much for listening. As always, as if you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon, if you haven't already, at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at BrennanBeefish on Twitter, BrennanBeefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Merrybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight who was guided by voices, Sir Courtenay, What to the Five Fingers Say to the Face Penrose, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mar Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, and Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan. Thank you so much to all of our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you all very, very much. So, join us next week. Oh boy, here we go. For A Clash of Kings, Daenerys 2, in which we go from Emmett's favorite setting in A Song of Ice and Fire to both of our least favorite. God, we're going to Karth. I can't wait. It's that time. Yay, Karth. Go, go, Karth. And Quaith. Quaith is there too, which is great. It's, it's all amazing. It's all cues. All cues all the way down. And yeah, I loop back to the question with which we started this episode about terrible movies that nonetheless fascinate us. And I think that's true of Karth. I don't think Karth works. I think it's on the whole the weakest part of the story, but I've, I have a, a lot of things to say about which the ways in which it does not work. So while it's not one of our favorite parts, I think we will still nonetheless glean some really good episodes from it. It's going to be a fascinating, interesting time as we deconstruct George R. R. Martin. Actually, deconstruct Karth. Karth. We're deconstructing Karth in our analysis of A Clash King's Danny 2. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much to our patrons, all of our patrons for supporting us. And we will see you guys next week.